Hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're finishing William Creelock's Vagabonding Under Sail, and we're on chapter 22. Chapter 22, the epilogue. Shadows from her sails. Whereon remembrance, tantalising, falls like shadows from her sails. A quote from John Anderson. During the past few months, our plans for the future had been in the melting pot, but by the time Don and I reached New York, they had more or less taken shape. Time was the whole issue. Could we allow ourselves any longer before we faced the inevitable choice of settling down or wandering? We always knew that our wanderings in content would have to come to an end some day. We were sure that neither finances nor boredom with our way of life could stop us. The former was simply a question of spending sufficient time en route to earn the necessary money, and the latter depended entirely on our individual outlooks, and they had not changed. But sooner or later, we had to come to the middle ground boy and choose our channels to one side or the other. If we chose to carry on to the westward through the Panama Canal, we would have to be prepared to spend another two or three years on our voyage, for once in the Pacific, there would be no turning back. It would take as long to return as it would to continue around the world. Each of us solved the problem in his own way, but we agreed that we would have to end the trip in content. Don had the chance of a good position in his profession if he returned to England and had been pondering the problem for some time. Ernest hoped to stay in the States for a while and intended to collaborate with a professor of history in reenacting the voyage of Verrazano, one of the early navigators and discoverer of the eastern seaboard of America. Content would be used for the task. I had always been attracted by New Zealand and was anxious to see it before I finally climbed into a collar and tie again. Then, out of the blue, came a letter from our friends Tom and Diana, whom we had known when lying alongside the Arthur Rogers in Guiana. They were setting out across the Pacific and wondered whether any of us would be free to join them. The offer might have been made to measure for me. To find the opportunity of travelling in a small boat is difficult, but to do so with people one likes and respects is rare indeed. I immediately established contact. They were lying in the Panama Canal and would be setting out in about two months' time, carrying one or two paying guests perhaps, to pay for the voyage. Don was tempted too, but for a variety of reasons decided to keep to his original plan, much to my disappointment, and made arrangements to return to England. At the end of April 1951, three years after we first met, Ernest and I accompanied Don to the dock where people were being herded into the side of the Queen Elizabeth and saw him and his guitar merge with the throng. Ernest and I returned to Content, recently launched, to move her to another anchorage. The old grey mare functioned surprisingly well, considering that, for the second time, she had lost her engineer. Three weeks later, I left Content with a crew of two on board, for Ernest had recently rescued a small kitten from drowning and had signed it on ship's articles. He dumped the baggage he had been carrying in my cabin on the ship that was taking me south to the Arthur Rogers. During the three hours which remained till the ship's departure, he was typing feverishly to finish the chapter he was contributing to the book. Then he went ashore. As the ship pulsed through the darkness down New York Harbour, I watched the fading lights of Manhattan. How different from when we had last seen them as we arrived, tired and wet and content. There are a few people, fortunately very few, 
who cannot understand what we got from our trip in content. To that type of person, it is difficult to explain, for certainly we gained nothing concrete. He would not understand the value of the recollections which now crowd upon us whenever we chance to hear surf on a shore or the barking of a dog across the water or to feel a rope in our hands or taste salt on our lips. But as I stood there that night, I thought in particular of the friends we had made in every port we had entered and without whose help our life would have been very difficult. We often discussed this point. We had deliberately chosen to travel about in a small boat and anything which ensued was our own fault. Yet everywhere there were people, strangers until a few hours before, who did everything they could to give us the help to which we had no right and which we could never return. To travel as a poor man is the surest way to restore one's faith in human nature. For everywhere there are people like those, far too numerous to mention by name, who welcomed the scruffy strangers from content for as long as they remained, like ships that pass in the night. And as Longfellow said, and speak each other in passing, only a signal shown and a distant voice in the darkness. So on the ocean of life we pass and speak one another, only a look and a voice, then darkness again and a silence. Well, I hope you're enjoying Vagabonding Under Sail. We're just going into the last chapter now, going to round it out. I just want to take this opportunity to thank all my patrons over on Patreon. Your contributions make this happen and the Mariner podcast and the Mariner YouTube channel. I really appreciate your support. If you haven't already, nip over to Patreon and forward slash the Mariner. And there we've got seamanship training videos. We've got gear reviews. We've got me doing critiques of uh, Robert Redford films that went out this week on YouTube. It's uh, $5 a month to support the podcast and all those things coming together will allow everybody to enjoy more of these rare nautical reads. Enjoy the last chapter. Cheers. Chapter 23. The Appendix. Looking at illustrations of small boats which have made long ocean voyages, one is forced to admit that almost anything that floats well will survive a long ocean passage, given reasonable luck. I remember with what awe we looked at a certain little ship lying in Gibraltar. She was a shambles. Her rigging, which appeared to consist partly of some sort of fence wire, hung gracefully in festoons and her planking was held together in places by a thin coat of paint. She carried no anchors, and though she had an engine, it was of little use, since some enterprising pirate had sneaked up when the ship was aground and removed the propeller with a hacksaw. One could have said, without hesitation, that she would hardly have floated in thick mud. Yet this vessel had recently completed the passage from England across the Bay of Biscay to Gibraltar. In content, we were lucky, for she was a development of a breed of boat, the Falmouth Key Punt, which had been evolved to stay at sea in any weather. She was excellently built at Falmouth in 1914, at what was then the yard of Thomas and Sons, having pitch pine planking on oak frames with cowrie pine decks. Her previous owner had rigged her for single-handed sailing, reducing her sail area and giving her a boomless mainsail with a long gaff and vangs. This sail had developed a middle-aged spread and was never a very good performer on the wind. The chain peak halyard was unusual, but when the long gaff was dancing about aloft it was comforting to know that the peak was secure and the chain never gave us any trouble. Content's large wetted surface detracted from her performance in the light air. 
and of course, it was more than ever important to keep her bottom clean. In this, we were greatly helped by the copper sheathing. Only twice during the whole trip did we scrape her, and both times the accumulation was surprisingly small. Content was the best we could buy and was very much the better half of the partnership between ship and crew. But of course, she was not perfect, no ship ever is. Her beam of a little over 11 feet, excluding rubbing bands, was less than we would have liked. With her heavy keel and easy bilges, she rolled too easily. The deep draught of seven and a half feet, which the narrow beam allowed, gave us excellent headroom, but another 18 inches of beam would have made all the difference to her accommodation. Her layout below decks was not really suited to the tropics, being too thoroughly subdivided, and we always begrudged the old grey mare her spacious quarters. Had we been able to afford it, we would have liked to have altered Content's rig from cutter to catch. The catch has, of course, a bad reputation for windward work, but I feel that this is largely due to the combination of gaff mizzen and mainsail, the mizzen being of little use when close-hauled. Where a Marconi mizzen is used with the gaff main, the former being naturally the closer winded of the two, should suffer comparatively little from interference. This rig, besides increasing our total sail area slightly, would, I am sure, have been more efficient than the existing one. In any case, windward ability would not have been of much advantage to us, for we had a hearty dislike for windward work, except when day sailing in someone else's boat. We always did our best to sail downhill in content. The Square Rig Presuming that every penny spent on fitting out the boat means that much less for the purchase of tobacco, beer and other essential stores, is a square rig worthwhile? For two main reasons, we considered that the money we spent on square sails was very well spent indeed. The first was the great saving on the fore and aft rig. Running before the trades with the belly of the mainsail pressing hard against the shrouds would probably have reduced it to the texture of mosquito netting, whereas the square rig suffered no ill effects. The more palpable advantage was the ease in steering. Content either steered herself or required only the lightest touch on the helm. Under normal rig, it would have been a month-long fight with the tiller, which would completely have changed the whole aspect of the passage. It was difficult to gather much information on square rig for small boats, but we had five alternatives to consider. Twin spinnakers, twin staysails, a normal square sail and yard, a normal square sail with twin yards, and twin sails and yards. The principal requirements with which our rig would have to comply were versatility, ease of handling, and durability, and consequent low maintenance costs. Twin spinnakers satisfied none of these, they would have been good driving power, but the prospect of handling them at night in a squall was too intimidating. Twin staysails were durable, cheap to install, very easy to handle and offered the possibility of automatic steering, but the area which could be provided would be small for a heavy hull like ours, and most of that area would be low down. A straightforward square sail and yard was the obvious solution, but there was the problem of what to do with the yard. We could not leave it aloft in a boat of our size, yet 20-odd feet of spar would create serious overcrowding problems on our already loaded decks. The starboard deck had to be kept free for a main thoroughfare, and on the port deck we carried a small spare mainsail rolled round its gaff, and an unsightly assortment of lumber which was constantly in demand for repair and construction projects. Twin yards would solve this problem, 
for their combined weight would be considerably less than that of the single spar, and when not in use, they could lie along the shrouds if they could pivot in any direction on the mast. So twin yards were decided upon, after the fashion of the old cutter Jolly Breeze, which we were to see later in Lisbon. The pivot fittings for the mast had to be designed by ourselves, and after much exhausting brainwork, we approached an engineering firm, waving scraps of paper in our hands, and arranged to have them made for us. But the single square saw did not fulfill the requirement of versatility, so we adopted twin sails which could be laced down their common edge. Our reason for doing this was that we carried no spinnacron content, and therefore required a rig which could be used to supplement our normal rig when necessary. The yards themselves were quite light, with diameters of 3 inches at their mid-length and 2 inches at each end, for the sail was set flying on them. Each yard measured 12 feet in length. The square saw below each yard had a halyard on the inboard end of its head and an outhaul running through a block at the yardarm, through another at the mast and down to the deck. Each carried a tack rope to the foot of the mast and a sheet leading right aft from the outer clue. A bonnet of lighter material could be laced to the foot of each sail. Above each yard, we set a triangular raffee with an outhaul to the yardarm and a short sheet from the inner clue to a shackle which slid on the forestay. The yards themselves were controlled by a light forebrace running through a small block at the bowsprit end and a wire afterbrace leading to the quarter. A yard lift ran from the jib halyard mast band through a block at the yardarm, through another at the masthead and down to the deck, and by this time we were running round in circles. The array of strings seemed a little intimidating at first, but once we were able to fight our way through the ropes into clear, open air, we looked back at the web and realised that its handling was really simplicity in itself, and that there was probably little truth in the rumour that rope industry shares had risen markedly on the day we designed our new rig. In practice, the raffies slid docilely down the forestay under perfect control, and any incipient capers were cut short by a complete blanketing by the squaresels. If necessary, the wind could be spilled from the rest of the rig by allowing both yards to pivot forward while retaining the tension on the central tack lines. The sails fell onto the foredeck where they could be stowed at the foot of the mast with their lines attached ready for rehoisting. The yards could be swung to use a wind a little abaft the beam, the limiting factor being the bearing of the leeward yard on the main shrouds, which in turn was determined by the amount by which its pivot stood proud of the mast. The topmost shrouds were flicked out of their notches on the spreaders and led aft to act as backstays, and with a calm sea, a sound liver and a steady hand could be replaced without going aloft. If we were designing the rig again, we would make two modifications. We would have our sails of medium weight material, ours were very heavy, the strain being small on a sail which does not have to stand, and we would increase our area from just under 500 square feet to something over 600. The rig certainly did everything we had hoped it would. We often set the mainsail and topsail on one side and a raffi, square sail, bonnet and extra bonnet as a drabbler on the other. On occasion, we even swung the weather yard parallel with the ship's centerline and set a raffi on it as a sort of flying jib topsail. The result must have looked a trifle surrealistic. But it worked. Navigation by The Navigator to admit that I spent only two days studying celestial navigation before we set out may seem foolhardy to some or may encourage others. 
but being a surveyor and accustomed to handling instruments and making calculations, perhaps I had few of the usual difficulties of a beginner. The biggest difficulty was in sorting the few facts I needed from the intimidating mass of calculation which confronted me when I started to study books on navigation. Many of the old bogies surrounding the mysterious art of navigation have disappeared. Some teachers now advocate learning the practice first in the belief that a natural interest in the theory will follow. Certainly, I found this way worked well with me. In fact, I doubt whether it is essential to know any theory in order to navigate safely. The tools of the small boat navigator can be simple enough. Chronometer or watch, marine sextant, hydrographic office publication 214, printed forms for solving the sites, nautical almanac, dividers, parallel rules, and of course, a chart. A good watch will serve as well as a chronometer on deck watch if there is a radio aboard. Unless one has a powerful shortwave set, however, there may be days when you cannot get a time signal. A chronometer with a known and reliable rate is a comfort at such times. A marine sextant is essential if one is going well outside of the sight of land. The various aircraft bubble sextants available very cheaply at war surplus stores are of little or no use in a yacht. Hydrographic Office Publication Number 214 is one of the most recent of the numerous methods of calculating astronomical position lines from sextant observations of the sun, stars or planets. It is a slim volume which contains all the required tables and gives brief notes on the working of the sites. HO218, the latest of the hydrographic office methods, is even simpler, but since there is a book for every four degrees of latitude, about 16 volumes in all, it is far less convenient than HO214. The printed forms which I typed and copied myself are very useful for the solution of sextant sites. Forms designed for yacht use are given in Mixter's Primer of Navigation, these forms show you just how to write down your observed results, how and where to look up the various logarithmic values in the tables, and when to add and when to subtract your findings. Using a pad of these forms, one's calculations soon become automatic, thus reducing mental work at sea to a minimum. It is also a simple matter when using these forms to back-check for errors of calculation. In a small boat, accuracy of position to within 5 miles is about all one can hope for in normal weather. When making a landfall, it is prudent to draw a 10-mile diameter or circle of error around one's position. Our practice at sea would be to take a morning sunset, a noon latitude of the sun, and an afternoon sunset. With these two astronomical position lines and latitude, I could get a reliable fix each day. This is a simple routine, and in southern latitudes where the sun is always available, is a good one. In foul weather, with overcast skies, one must take one's sights when one can, it is when one sails for days with never a glimpse of sun or stars that navigation becomes more a matter of by guess and by God than of precise calculation. Seasickness No doubt he would have been much more pathetic, but the sea acted as a strong emetic. A quote from Byron Nothing is more infuriating than to be told in the depths of one's misery that seasickness is 90% psychological. Yet, the mental outlook towards it is very important, and though my physical reactions to it did improve with time, it was my mental reactions which showed the greater change. The prospect of feeling sick became less intimidating, and certainly the actuality never incapacitated me or caused me to miss a watch. One begins to accept it is an inevitable risk, 
and even cooking can be accomplished if one is prepared for the periodic interruption of the rush to the deck. Len and Don were never seriously worried by it, though Ernest shared some of my unpleasant moments, but now it seems that Dramamine has brought hope to Le Miserable, for we have heard many enthusiastic accounts of the miracles it has wrought. We often pondered over the question of proneness to the malady, but the only point that we could discover was that in a great many cases, the better the person's digestion, the more likely he was to feel seasick, and that a person who had to watch what he ate was usually immune. I'm not going to advise fellow sufferers to eat whatever you do, because it is advice I cannot follow myself, but it is worth keeping some plain biscuits and fruit in the cockpit, for those can often be eaten when the thought of going below for food is too nauseating. Beverages such as tea and coffee seem to have a bad effect. One old salt told me to eat large quantities of dry bread before sailing to soak up the bile. Another recommended eating crackers in a dark room where one can't see the motion. Another recipe was a roll of bread into which one pokes one's finger. Down the hole thus formed some Worcestershire sauce or similar hot sauce is poured and the roll eaten quickly. The theory was that the heat which would be released in the stomach would have a beneficial effect. The same idea lay behind the taking of a teaspoon of cayenne pepper in a glass of water. A commonly quoted remedy is a patch over one eye, and a less usual one is a patch of sticking plaster over the navel. Presumably a combination of both of these would be particularly effective. The one cure which seemed to be applicable in every case, and which should perhaps be taken in conjunction with all others, was a stiff tot of rum. But finally, we came to the conclusion that there was only one sure way of avoiding seasickness. Stay ashore. Sea cooking. A few galley notes which may inspire the yachtsman and horrify the landlubber. Too many cooks may spoil some broths, but not ours, for our day in the galley came around all too quickly, even with our four cooks. Later there were only three, for we never managed to get Swizzle to do any useful galley work apart from cleaning the corned beef cans. Each cook developed two or three specialities for which he became famous or infamous. For example, Don would regularly produce fried corned beef patties followed by boiled syrup pudding with custard on it. Len liked meat pies and would concoct these from corned beef, bouillon, onions and carrots. As often as not the gravy would spill over with the rolling of the ship, but Len kept doggedly on making his pies and we kept on eating them. Suddenly and mysteriously, Len would produce delicious Cornish pasties when we least expected them. These pasties were basically corned beef hash baked in pastry. Bill baked many magnificent apple pies. Bill was passionately fond of apple pies. If apples were not available, as they often were not, we would make fruit pies. He had taken aboard a good supply of fruit prepared by Len's fiancée, and these lasted until mid-Atlantic, where we probably celebrated our day's run with the last jar. Bill's pastry making was inspired. I'm sure his mother must have trained him secretly before he set out. He would pour over the bowl, adding water drop by drop to the mixture and slowly, painfully moulding it into a dough. If we were ever sufficiently ill-advised to comment on this, he would lecture us on the importance of the gentle touch and the right proportions. I must admit that he produced much better pastry than I, who would pour water into the flour with what Bill thought careless abandon. If the mixture was too thin, I would simply add more flour. If it were too thick, one just pounded harder with the rolling pin. 
If the cook were feeling squeamish, the rolling of the pastry would be carried out on deck, much to the amusement of Swizzle, and perhaps to the slight detriment of the pastry. Almost all of our pies suffered from the loss of juice due to the rolling of the boat. As time went by, the congealed juice mixtures in the oven began to burn with a foul, sulfurous odour. This had no serious effect upon the pies, providing the resulting soot was brushed off before serving. Although towards time when we had to clean the oven, our pies assumed the strangest hues. I was known for my stews, for my stuffed tomatoes and an occasional baked jam roll. These stews had often revived a seasick crew, though served in port they seemed to produce an opposite effect. The recipe was fairly simple. Put everything available in the galley into a large saucepan, add water and boil. Now as I read this book I'm not going to read all the ingredients that he puts in but I can share with you that such a stew is referred to as a slam stew. You just slam everything in a pan and boil it. The cost. Yacht prices were at their peak in 1948 and although we bought content at a fair market price she cost us probably five times as much as the man who built her back in 1914. She cost us $8,000. Our combined savings plus the proceeds from the sale of old cars and motorcycles bought us about half that amount. Half of this sum was spent on the initial fitting out and equipping of the vessel. A sound job of copper sheathing the hull cost us a very reasonable $800. Our squaresels, made by a coal, sand and gravel merchant in a little North Devonshire fishing port, cost $400, actually less than the quoted price. Food in Britain at this time, so soon after the Second World War, was strictly rationed, but we were given a permit for three months' supply of food, smokes and liquor. Our allowance was based on the scale for seamen, which included 20 cigarettes and a pint of spirits per man per day, free of duty. Thus, we took aboard three cases of gin and two brandy, besides 8,000 cigarettes and tobacco. Most of the liquor, I hasten to say, was for the purpose of mellowing difficult port officials, though we thought we might barter some of it. None of us drank for the sake of drinking, though towards the end Don became deeply aware of the possibilities of the rum punch. Between us, we consumed no more than half a dozen bottles of our own liquor during the whole voyage. The cost of our initial provisioning was $400. Miscellaneous expenses incurred during the fitting out came to another $400. This included a new stove, blankets, sleeping bags, bosun stores, etc. We sailed away from England with about $2,800. This sum lasted until the end of 1949, when we arrived in St. Lucia. This works out to an average weekly expenditure of $40 for the 18-month period. Everything was included in this. Food, tips to barmaids, hiring of watchmen, bribing of Spanish police, and so forth. Working for five months in St. Lucia, Don and Ernest earned $1,000. During 1950, a further $500 was earned with photographs and articles. This total lasted until the end of 1950, that's 12 months, and works out to an average of $30 per week. As there were only three of us, not counting the dog, during this period, the overall inclusive cost for the whole voyage was $10 per person per week. Some useless statistics. For the benefit of those who are not in the least bit interested and for our own amazement, we have compiled a few statistics. Like most statistics, they are fairly meaningless. During our voyage, we sailed about 9,000 miles and visited 30 ports and anchorages. Until our arrival in New York, we had had about 150 sailing days and about 600 in port. Our average length of stay in port, including Guiana and St. Lucia, was just under three weeks. Our average mileage per day, including periods of calms, was 60, 
giving a speed of just over two and a half knots. Our overall average speed, including time spent in port, was a bare half knot. We weighed anchor about 130 times, which involved about a quarter of a million foot-pounds of work. The energy used would have driven the Queen Elizabeth 164th of an inch, which would scarcely have been worth the trouble. The number of edible fish caught during the two and a half years was one, which we are confident is the second lowest catch ever recorded and amounts for the total of 500 tins of corned beef consumed. Below decks, we carried about 300 books, of which we read about three and a half each, being far too busy writing our 600 letters and taking our 1,000 photographs. Outward bound. Other people's mistakes are carelessness, our own or experience, it has been said, by which token we of content had the opportunity to learn a vast amount. It would be impudence for us to offer advice on seamanship, for every month showed us how much we still had to learn, but there are a number of little points which cropped up during the years, and we can at least pass on a little of what we learned. The best advice one could give to anyone who really intends to roam under sail is simply go. Get out. Get out before the words next year have crept into your planning, before you have lost your crew or your money, if any, before you fall in love with a damsel or out of love with your dream. The most difficult decision is the first, to leave your job and your home. Once you are underway with companions you can trust to stay with you, the battle is won. Only one thing is necessary to the fulfillment of your dream, and that is a boat. Beyond that, nothing. Not money nor experience, for both, though nice to have, can be acquired as you go. Working your way is not easy because it takes patience, but it can be done. The majority of those who set out to do this hope to earn a part of their living by writing. This again is difficult unless there is one among your crew who has experience in that field. Unfortunately, in content, there was not, and we had to work very much in the dark, and it took a lot of work too. If you must pay for your passage as you go, be prepared to take twice as long as you thought to go half the distance. When fitting out, spend every penny you can afford on your boat, and then some that you cannot. If you can manage the capital to copper sheath the hull, you will find that it saves a great deal of incidental expenditure later on, and a great deal of worry over slipping and beaching in areas where this cannot be easily done. If you are buying new sails, it will pay handsomely to have made them of flax, for it stands the tropics very much better than canvas. Similarly, hemp line retains its strength long after the others are useless. We considered that a square rig was well worth the expense, and remember that square sails need not be expertly cut. They can be ordered from firms who are used to working for a commercial craft. A good awning is essential for tropical climates. Not only does it enable you to live most of your life on deck while in port, but it will protect much of your sails and deck structures from the ravages of sun and rain. We set out without one and had to use the square sails until a British warship presented us with some of their surplus canvas when we were in the Caribbean. If you're going to be in port in the tropics for several weeks, it is worth the trouble of unreaving most of your running rigging or it will soon lose its strength. If you're going to sail in coral waters, some sort of seat on the spreaders for the lookout will make his job a lot happier. It pays to have someone aloft in difficult waters, and the more comfortable he is, the better he will do his job. Polarised sunglasses will make it easier to see dangers beneath the surface. Perhaps we are prejudiced, but we think that a dog is almost a necessity on a long voyage. Quite apart from his companionship, he will be a good investment in areas noted for the light fingers of their inhabitants. 
the natives of the West Indies are frightened of a dog, particularly of a black one, and during the 18 months after we signed on Swizzle, we lost only $1 worth of gear by theft. During the previous year, we had lost nearly $600 worth. Small boat gear is surprisingly difficult to buy in areas such as the Caribbean or Spain and Portugal, and is usually of poor quality. Fittings such as blocks, shackles, clip hooks, etc. provide one with little choice in sizes, if obtainable at all. If you are short of money, it will pay you to carry as much junk as you can. We found that most of ours did come in useful sooner or later. We gradually added additional shelves and lockers as we went and were glad of the pieces of good wood we had taken with us. Seasoned wood is not always easy to buy and is often quite expensive. Provisioning the ship is simply a battle between one's stomach and one's purse and will depend on individual tastes. But of course, remember not to leave the labels on any tins that are stored near the bilges or they will wash off and clog the pump. Some cans have code letters stamped on one end and you can make a note of these and list the contents. Otherwise, you can paint code letters on the tins yourself. We had to grease lightly those that lay near the bilge or against the skin of the boat beneath the waterline. Don, our expert in such matters, assured us that if we ate a reasonable amount of fresh food while in port, we need not worry about vitamins. Certainly, we had no health problems, but in the tropics, wear some covering on your upper half after sundown. However warm the night may seem, people unused to the tropics neglect this and usually end up with vague pains in the back. We never worried about the sun except for wearing glasses sometimes at sea. In St. Lucia, I used to work from morning to dusk in full sunshine with no more protection than a pair of swimming trunks, and I felt no ill effects. In time, one's skin becomes hardened by wind and sun and gives one complete protection. In New York, I went along to be vaccinated and the doctor broke his instrument trying to scratch his way through the skin. As a narrator's note, I would say that this is advice from 1948. I also met many people from that era who have had to have a large number of skin cancers removed from their bodies. So I take that with a pinch of salt. Let's continue. <laughs> Cockroaches seem to like the life aboard as much as we did. No matter how careful one is, they will find their way into a small boat. Careful scrutiny of any stores bought on board in the tropics and the cardboard it comes in will reduce the numbers and roach bombs make life almost intolerable for them. Hand sprays are quite effective but soon rust in a small boat and their use involves just that extra little bit of trouble which makes the difference between going after a cockroach in full cry and allowing him to go his way unharmed. Suspect mildew everywhere. It is a very persistent enemy. Small objects such as cameras or instruments can be kept by putting them in an airtight tin with a little silica gel to keep the air dry. Store your envelopes with their flaps open or they will soon be hopelessly sealed. Books always caused us some anxiety for sooner or later in a small boat they will be wet. We found that scrap tracing cloth obtained from a drawing office made the most serviceable covering though we always wanted to cover them with transparent plastic material. We had thought that a toaster for the galley was an unnecessary complication, but we found one that will work on a primer stove and it was invaluable when the bread had lost its flavour after the first week on a passage. Spare parts for stoves are usually difficult to buy. We think it an economy to buy good galleyware. Enamel pots and pans soon rust through. In port, we found a whistle to be the most effective means of attracting the attention of those on board when one wanted to be fetched in the dinghy. We often use the Morse signal for the first letter of content's name. In bad weather at sea, or when running under square rig, we carried these whistles round our necks as a safety measure should we fall overboard. Shouting might be difficult, 
with one's throat full of salt water. When you are visiting foreign countries with a language of their own, make an attempt to learn a little of the language. We found that a week or so spent with one of the simple books on the subject, not the books of stock phrases, gave us the rudiments of grammar, and that afterwards practice enabled us to become proficient enough to be friends and not merely acquaintances of the local people, and how they love to hear you try. A dictionary is a wonderful means of making friends, and they will laugh with you and not at you when you flounder about. The Englishman or the American who expects everyone to speak his language is a stock character painfully true to life. We had no visitor's book of the ordinary kind on board content. Somehow we felt that it was not very appropriate. Instead, we had our elephant book. In this, our friends had to draw an elephant while keeping their eyes closed. The results were wonderful. No doubt of deep psychological significance and usually threw our guests into mild hysterics. So much better than a bold signature and the numbing impact of that awful column-headed remarks. The idea was not our own, but came from our friends on the Arthur Rogers who had their pig book. Above all, when you go vagabonding in a little ship, you become a member of the little band of people whose highway is the ocean and who live in wooden walls. There is no more convivial atmosphere than that of a boat's saloon after a passage. In our own and in others we lingered over mugs of tea or rum punches, swapping tall stories and learning of the plans and whereabouts of other little ships we knew at least by name, for the world of waters is smaller than you think. That's the end of Vagabonding Under Sail. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you've enjoyed this series of podcasts up to now, I'd ask you to go over to Patreon forward slash The Mariner and consider supporting the podcast with a $5 donation. Rare Nautical Reads will be back tomorrow with another book from the Rudolf Hasse Nautical Library. And I'm excited to share another Rare Nautical Read with you soon. Cheers. Cheers.